Hi, this is the official podcast of the WCD. There's a World Congress of Dermatology which will be held next in Singapore in 2023. I am Dr. Etienne Wang from the National Skin Centre of Singapore and I will be your host for this podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts and wherever else you get your podcasts. In this podcast, I speak with dermatologists and skin researchers from all over the world to talk about all things dermatology and today I have my co-host Lester back with another derm topic for discussion. Hi Lester, what do we have today? Hi Etienne, very nice to be back here again. I thought today it would be a very timely moment to talk about how the monkeypox situation has evolved since we first heard about it last year all the way till, till now in fact. If I could just give everyone a brief introduction as to how monkeypox came about. Um, we first knew about monkeypox at all in the 1970s but that, back then it was just endemic to areas of Central Africa and West Africa and it was only until last year at about May 2022, that multiple countries started noticing cases of monkeypox that first appeared in non-endemic areas. That the spread happened so quickly that WHO uh, declared it a public health emergency of international concern by July 2022. This is quite interesting because it's quite a dramatic dermatological presentation and of course it came hot on the heels of the COVID pandemic, so I think the world was primed to respond to this in a, in a very unique way. Well, you could say that the public health experts were all primed to uh, respond to such threats, but the group of people who were actually not yet ready to receive them were, were the dermatologists themselves, because smallpox, which is the closest cousin of monkeypox, has actually been eliminated quite, quite a few years ago. And as such, the new generations of dermatologists like myself, I wouldn't have had the chance to see all these sort of uh, pox viruses as often. And so when monkeypox first came up and patients presented to the dermatologist, I think quite a lot of us struggled in terms of achieving the correct diagnosis. There'll be a lot of time wasted considering other differentials. So kudos to the doctors who first noticed that there was something quite off about these patients and decided to investigate further. And of course, monkeypox is also one of these other conditions that was disproportionately affecting a certain uh, subgroup of people, right? So that also hampered uh, public health messaging for, for a while. So what was interesting is that this international outbreak uh, is actually the variant called the Clade 2B variant. And in this variant, they found that unlike uh, the original monkeypox that was spread in the 1970s, there was a huge uh, disproportionate number of uh, men who have sex with men, the MSM population, who were infected with this. And initially, it was thought to be just due to close contact, but it was not till quite late where finally people decided to call the spade a spade and say that this is, after all, one of uh, a sexually transmitted conditions and that we should pay special attention to our vulnerable populations. I think as such, quite a lot of countries, because they didn't quite uh, put their foot down to say that this is a uh, disease that disproportionately affects uh, gay men, the education, the protection, the vaccination schemes, all this actually rolled out late for, for some places. Looking back on this epidemic, I think it's quite interesting to think about the social factors and the historical factors that led to this. Of course, we had the AIDS crisis in the 80s where MSM were actually demonised for harbouring the virus. And so coming hot on the heels of a lot of very social upheavals during, uh, during the pandemic, such as Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements, I think people were very hesitant to jump on labelling this disease as uh, a gay disease. So here's where I think that the role of the dermatologist is quite important. I think we get to see all these cases firsthand and we know who are the people who tend to be more vulnerable to this. We should be their advocates. If we can't get, uh, get to the public health experts to tell them that, hey, this is disproportionately affecting this population, we could at least try to uh, reach out to our patients who place their trust in us 
to at least educate them on how to prevent and how to minimize the chances of getting monkeypox. And I feel that until we are comfortable with advocating for the MSM population, we will never be able to break this barrier and we will always be a little bit more backward, just like uh, what happened with the AIDS crisis initially. But I think uh, here we also have to commend the uh, LGBT and the gay community in some countries, in the, uh, unfortunately in the more affluent countries, for stepping up and actually spreading the message within their communities such that a, a lot of behaviour change actually happened to reduce the transmission of monkeypox, do you think? I think so. And, and looking through the data, I think that one of the countries which uh, successfully ramped up all their efforts against monkeypox, I would say would be Australia. So shortly after they discovered a new case in May 2022 and after WHO declared uh, this emergency of international concern in July, they quickly identified that their at-risk population were the LGBT community, especially men who have sex with men, and uh, they rolled out vaccination schemes, they made it free, they made it accessible to the citizens, and in fact by November of the same year, 2022, they found that there was uh, actually minimal transmission and they actually stood down their, de their declaration that this was a communicable disease incident of national significance and they told everyone, lead their lives normally, but just be careful. And I think that happens with a country that is ready to call it as it is, that is ready to deal with the fact that this does affect a vulnerable population and they were not willing to discriminate, they were willing to just immediately offer help and there's a lot to learn from that. Mm, yes, absolutely. I also think we can't leave this topic without talking about the inequities that actually still exist. I think in America, a lot of the vaccines were shunted towards a more affluent communities such as white cis gay men rather than other uh, subgroups such as, you know, trans people of colour who are also at risk of this. And not to mention, of course, this epidemic is still actually raging on in West and Central Africa. So a lot of people are still contracting monkeypox and I think the death rate there is still quite high and no one's talking about that right now. That's always the case in most viruses that spread across the world, I feel. Unfortunately, the affluent are the ones who, 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 who have more media attention, they have more resources in terms of uh, research into prevention and treatment. And I feel as uh, for our role as dermatologists, we just have to have a very close-knit relationship between our, ourselves and our colleagues, specifically our ID colleagues, uh, colleagues from the sexual health clinics, our epidemiologists, our public health experts, so that we can all work together. I don't quite know how this situation will evolve. I don't know whether in our lifetimes we will finally see a day of equity amongst people of all colours, all genders, but I really I'm quite optimistic that things are moving in the right direction. I think we really need to take a look at our response to pandemics and the way that we respond to who gets what disease because monkeypox was just, uh, was just a canary in a goldmine because we have Nipah virus and Marburg virus nipping at our heels right now. Um, they're ravaging certain parts of the impoverished world and I think that if we don't uh, look at the whole world as, a, as one community, we're going to just fall into the same patterns as before. Yeah, that unfortunately is a work in progress for the world, I feel but I'm not quite sure if there's a good solution to that yet. Yeah. Okay, well, hopefully we'll discuss all that at the WCD in July. <laughs> yes, looking forward, I think it's, it's less than half a year away, so really, really, really excited about it. Okay, well, thank you, Lester. Thank you for the very stimulating weekend discussion, and I'll speak to you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. 
And now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Professor John McGrath. He holds the Mary Dunhill Chair in Cutaneous Medicine at the St. John's Institute of Dermatology, and he's the Academic Head of Department for the St. John's Institute of Dermatology and its Genetic Skin Disease Unit. He's also the Honorary Consultant Dermatologist to the Guys in St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust in London. His clinical and research work focuses on the diagnosis of inherited skin diseases and the development of novel treatments for rare skin diseases. Welcome, John, to the podcast. Very nice to uh, speak with you, Etienne. So, John, your uh, your impressive resume covers a lot of things from um, a lot of genetic skin diseases, in, uh, especially um, epidermolysis bullosa. Can you give us a little bit of a summary of what's the most exciting thing about epidermolysis bullosa in your field at the moment? Yes, of course. Many of us as dermatologists have met patients with EB and other genetic diseases, and we're always somewhat frustrated by the fact that there doesn't seem to be a lot we can do for them. But the excitement now is around the arrival of possible new therapies for patients. Now, for the last decade or so, we've been testing new forms of gene therapy and cell therapy and making a difference for some patients. But we're now starting to see some of those uh, clinical trials progress towards approved products, which will hopefully be entering the market and where we can really start to think that gene therapy and some other form of disease modification is going to be a reality for a large number of patients. Now, one of the other exciting fields that we are working on with colleagues around the world is drug repurposing. Now, we realize that EB and many of these genetic skin diseases are actually quite inflammatory diseases. And so we're taking lessons from colleagues who work on eczema and psoriasis, and we can characterize the inflammatory footprints in genetic skin disease skin and then start to use some of those biologics and small molecules to repurpose for patients with EB. The idea is reduce the inflammation, reduce the burden of disease, improve quality of life, and make things just a little bit better for a large number of patients. But we also have a lot of other exciting science that is heading towards clinic. The field of gene editing is something that we and others are involved with. The idea that you can fix genes rather than break them apart or have to replace them. You know, just like correcting a typo in a Word document, it's really getting to that stage. And so base editing, prime editing, this is all the excitement. And this is what really gives me a buzz. New science and new therapies. That's where we are now. So you mentioned some techniques like CRISPR or base editing. Have you had any patients who have benefited from this procedure? Not quite yet. I mean, gene editing has progressed in leaps and bounds over the last uh, four or five years. And the big challenge we have in just getting it to clinic is twofold. We can fix the gene, no problem. What we then have to do is to make sure that we are fixing it safely. And one of the sort of buzz phrases that we hear about in gene editing is off-target effects. Now, if you're fixing a typo and the second sentence on a book on, on page 26, are you going to actually have any collateral damage in chapter 11 or chapter 1? So these off-target effects are something that we have to screen for. And then the other challenge is about delivery, delivery, delivery. How can we go from cells and test tubes into a real patient? Can we fix something directly onto the skin? Can we come up with a a gene editing cream? This is the sort of work that we're pushing forward with at the moment. Uh, But I hope it won't be uh, too long before we actually have patients in dermatology, benefiting from gene editing technology. Yes, I think a lot of us are looking forward to that day. And I think the upcoming WCD, there are going to be a lot of presentations on this matter. 
Exactly. It's very exciting to see that there are a number of symposia and other sessions where the reality of gene treatments and other related therapies are going to be shown. We're going to see presentations where we just don't talk about genes anymore, but we actually show the journey to clinic. And I think for many dermatologists and particularly patients, that's going to be an exciting part of WCD. Your impressive resume also tells me that you are a mentor to a quite a number of research fellows and dermatologists who are interested in research. In fact, some of our own doctors here have had a stint in your lab at one point. Do you have any advice on young dermatologists who might be interested in pursuing research as a career? If you have a passion for research, then just go with it. A good idea is to turn up at some of these labs. I know the professors uh, that run these labs are human beings. They are approachable. They are very welcoming. And it's a good idea just to get your foot through the door and see what's going on. You can start off in a very humble capacity, just looking and learning. But before too long, you develop expertise and experience and you get bitten by the bug. When I started in dermatology, I thought I was just going to do clinical work. But once I'd met some patients with EB and other genetic diseases and started to see a few people in the lab, I realized that this could really enrich my life as a dermatologist. And so I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. And it's now a great pleasure to try and extend that opportunity to many other young dermatologists from all around the world. So just go for it. Keep the passion. And truthfully, John, I think I have you to thank for in inspiring me to do research all those years ago. I really look up to you and I see your career as something I aspire to. Well, you've done very well, Etienne. I mean, your work on hair diseases has been uh, phenomenal and it's great to see you've taken that forward back in Singapore. And when I first met you, you came to Singapore actually as a visiting expert all those years ago. I think it was 2011. Do you remember being in Singapore? Yes, it was my pleasure to come and give some uh, lectures and to meet people in the National Skin Centre and other institutions. And a few of your colleagues will remember me as an examiner, hopefully a very kind and warm-hearted dove of an examiner, but uh, I'm sure they have their own memories of that too. I'm really looking forward to being back in Singapore because it's going to be a great opportunity to catch up with colleagues. We know after the pandemic, it's still going on in parts of the world, but we really need a face-to-face -face, uh, get-togethers. So the fact that we have the WCD to congregate and meet up with old friends and make new friends is really exciting. But in terms of Singapore as a venue, I'm looking forward to being back uh, so much. I miss the atmosphere of Singapore, the buzz, the architecture, the food, the gardens, Everything is just a wonderful place to visit and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to ha seeing uh, WCD embrace not only the academia but also the social side of Singapore and we're going to have a great time. I'm really looking forward to it. And I think you mentioned to me before that you have a passion for gardening. So I believe when you come to Singapore you will be checking out the gardens by the bay and also a botanic oh, gardens. Oh yes, I, in the times I've visited Singapore before it's always been a pleasure to go and visit some of those uh, uh, wonderful plants and gardens that you have in Singapore. So the gardens by the bay will be a definite for, uh, for me. And then another place that I'd love to visit in the botanical gardens is to see the National Orchid Collection. It is a, a wonderful place to go. And uh, just for $5, you can get into the uh, Orchid Centre and have a wonderful uh, time. So for me, that's going to be uh, another highlight of uh, getting back to Singapore. And I think you'll be 
extra pleased to know that we actually commissioned an orchid for the WCD and we'll be unveiling it at the opening ceremony. That's amazing. That's an absolutely fantastic uh, uh, innovation. You know, uh, I think dermatology is all about uh, sight and beauty and so on. And to be able to combine that vision of a new plant, a new orchid for the World Congress is really super. You know, in my own work uh, on EB, we have our own flower, not an orchid, I hasten to say, but uh, a sweet pea, uh, a sweet pea called Deborah, which is named after one of the patient organizations. Um, but I think the uh, it sounds as if the WCD orchid is going to be uh, even better than that. And so I very much look forward to uh, seeing that too. Yes, that sounds amazing. And I really can't wait to see you again this July. And of course, thank you so much again for spending some time to speak with me this morning. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing all my colleagues in Singapore before too long. Thanks a lot, Etienne. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the official podcast of the WCD. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram at WCD2023 Singapore and check out the WCD website wcd2023singapore.org for more updates and content on the WCD. Discounted early bird registration has been extended to lower and lower middle income countries until June and until next time, stay safe and use sunblock.